Chapters 13 and 14 of The Angel of Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. The Angel of Terror by Edgar Wallace. Chapter 13. There was one thing which rather puzzled and almost piqued Lydia Meredith and that was the failure of jean briggerland's prophecy to materialize jean had said half jestingly that jack glover would be a frequent visitor at the flat in point of fact he did not come at all even when she visited the offices of renette glover and simpson it was mr renette who attended to her and jack was invisible mr renette sometimes explained that he was at the courts for jack did all the court work sometimes that he had gone home she caught a glimpse of him once as she was driving past the law courts in the strand he was standing on the pavement talking to a bewigged counsel so possibly mr rennett had not stated more than the truth when he said that the young man's time was mostly occupied by the processes of litigation she was curious enough to look through the telephone directory to discover where he lived there were about fifty glovers and ten of these were john glovers and she was enough of a woman to call up six of the most likely, only to discover that her Mr. Glover was not amongst them. She did not know till later that his full name was Bertram John Glover, or she might have found his address without difficulty. Mrs. Morgan had now arrived, to Lydia's infinite relief, and had taken control of the household affairs. The new maid was as perfect as a new maid could be, and, but for the nightly intrusion of the taciturn Jags, to whom, for some reason, Mrs. Morgan took a liking, the current of her domestic life ran smoothly. She was already becoming accustomed to the possession of wealth. The habit of being rich is one of the easiest acquired, and she found herself negotiating for a little house in Curzon Street, and a more pretentious establishment in Somerset, with a sang-froid which astonished and frightened her. The purchase and arrival of her first car, and the engagement of her chauffeur, had been a thrilling experience. It was incredible, too, that her new banker should, without hesitation, deliver to her enormous sums of money at the mere affixing of her signature to an oblong strip of paper. She had even gotten over the panic feeling which came to her on her first few visits to the bank. On these earlier occasions, she had felt rather like an inexpert forger who was endeavoring to get money by false pretense, and it was both a relief and a wonder to her when the nonchalant cashier thrust thick wads of banknotes under the grill without so much as sending for a policeman. "'It's a lovely flat,' said Jean Briggerland, looking round the pink drawing-room approvingly. "'But of course, my dear,' this is one that was already furnished for you i'm dying to see what you will make of your own home when you get one she had telephoned that morning to lydia saying that she was paying a call asking if it was convenient and the two girls were alone it is a nice flat and i shall be sorry to leave it agreed lydia it is so extraordinarily quiet i sleep like a top there is no noise to disturb one except that there was rather an unpleasant happening the other morning what was that asked jean stirring her tea i don't really know what happened said lydia i heard an awful groaning very early in the morning and i got up and looked out of the window there were two men in the courtyard 
One, I think, had hurt himself very badly. I never discovered what happened. They must have been workmen, I should think, said Jean, or else they were drunk. Personally, I have never liked taking furnished flats, she went on. One always breaks things, and there's such a big bill to pay at the end, and then I always lose the keys. One usually has two or three. You should be very careful about that, my dear. They make an enormous charge for lost keys, she prattled on. I think the house agent gave me three, said Lydia. She walked to her little secretaire, opened it, and pulled out a drawer. Yes, three, she said. There is one here, one I carry, and Miss Morgan has one. Have you seen Jack Glover lately? Jean never pursued an inquiry too far, by so much as one syllable. No, I haven't seen him, smiled Lydia. You weren't a very good prophet. I expect he is busy, said the girl carelessly. I think I could like Jack awfully, if he hadn't such a passion for ordering people about. How careless of me! She had tipped over her teacup, and its contents were running across the little tea table. She pulled out her handkerchief quickly and tried to stop the flow. Oh, please, please don't spoil your beautiful handkerchief, said Lydia, rising hurriedly. I will get a duster. She ran out of the room and was back almost immediately, to find Jean standing with her back to the secretaire, examining the ruins of her late handkerchief with a smile. "'Let me put your handkerchief in water, or it will be stained,' said Lydia, putting out her hand. "'I would rather do it myself,' laughed Jean Briggerland, and pushed the handkerchief into her bag. There were many reasons why Lydia should not handle that flimsy piece of cambric and lace, the most important of which was the key which Jean had taken from the secretaire in Lydia's absence, and had rolled inside the tea-stained handkerchief.' A few days later, Mr. Bertram John Glover interviewed a high official at Scotland Yard, and the interview was not a particularly satisfactory one to the lawyer. It might have been worse had not the police commissioner been a friend of Jack's partner. The official listened patiently, whilst the lawyer, with professional skill, marshaled all his facts, attaching to them the suspicions which had matured to convictions. "'I have sat in this chair for twenty-five years,' said the head of the CID, "'and I have heard stories which beat the best and the worst of detective stories hollow. "'I have listened to cranks, amateur detectives, crooks, parsons, and expert fictionists, "'but never in my experience have I heard anything quite so improbable as your theory. "'It happens I have met Briggerland, and I've met his daughter, too, "'and a more beautiful girl, I don't think, it has ever been my pleasure to meet.' Jack groaned. "'Aren't you feeling well?' asked the chief unpleasantly. "'I'm all right, sir,' said Jack. "'Only I'm so tired of hearing about Jean Briggerland's beauty. "'It doesn't seem a very good argument to oppose the facts.' "'Facts?' said the other scornfully. "'What facts have you given us?' "'The fact of the Briggerland's history,' said Jack desperately. 
Briggerland was broke when he married Miss Meredith under the impression that he would get a fortune with his wife. He has lived by his wits all his life, and until this girl was about fifteen, they were existing in a state of poverty. They lived in a tiny house in Ealing, the rent of which was always in arrears, and then Briggerland became acquainted with a rich Australian of middle age who was crazy about his daughter. The rich Australian died suddenly. From an overdose of Vernal said the chief. It was established at the inquest. I got all the documents out after I received your letter that he was in the habit of taking Vernal. You suggest he was murdered. If he was, for what? He left the girl about six thousand pounds. Briggerland thought she was going to get it all, said Jack. That is conjecture, interrupted the chief. Go on. Briggerland moved up west. Jack went on, and when the girl was seventeen, she made the acquaintance of a man named Gonsberry, who went just as mad about her. Gonsberry was a Midland merchant with a wife and a family, and he was so infatuated with her that he collected all the loose money he could lay his hands on, some twenty-five thousand pounds, and bolted to the continent. The girl was supposed to have gone on ahead, and he was to join her at Calais. He never reached Calais. The theory was that he jumped overboard. His body was found and brought into Dover, but there was none of the money in his possession that he had drawn from the Midland Bank. That is a theory, too, said the chief, shaking his head. The identity of the girl was never established. It was known that she was a friend of Gunsbury's, and there was proof that she was in London on the night of his death. It was a clear case of suicide. A year later, Jack went on, she forced a meeting with Meredith, her cousin. His father had just died. Jim had come back from Central Africa to put things in order. He was not a woman's man, and was a grave, retiring sort of fellow, who had no other interest in life than his shooting. The story of Meredith, you know. And that is all? asked the chief politely. All the facts I can gather. There must be other cases which are beyond the power of the investigator to unearth. And what do you expect me to do? Jack smiled. I don't expect you to do anything, he said frankly. You are not exactly supporting my views with enthusiasm. The chief rose, a signal that the interview was at an end. I'd like to help you if you had any real need for help he said, but when you come to me and tell me that Miss Briggerland, a girl whose innocence shows in her face, is a heartless criminal and a murderess and a conspirator, why, Mr. Glover, what do you expect me to say? I expect you to give adequate protection to Mrs. Meredith, said Jack sharply. I expect you, sir, to remember that I've warned you that Mrs. Meredith may die one of those accidental deaths in which Mr. and Miss Briggerland specialize. I'm going to put my warning in black and white, and if anything happens to Lydia Meredith, there is going to be serious trouble on the Times Embankment. The chief touched a bell, and a constable came in. Show Mr. Glover the way out, he said stiffly. Jack had calmed down considerably by the time he reached the Times Embankment, and was inclined to be annoyed with himself for losing his temper. He stopped a newsboy, took a paper from his hand, and, hailing a cab, drove to his office. 
There was little in the early edition, save the sporting news, but on the front page a paragraph arrested his eye. Dangerous lunatic at large. The medical superintendent at Norwood Asylum reports that Dr. Algernon John Thun, an inmate of the asylum, escaped last night and is believed to be at large in the neighborhood. Search parties have been organized, but no trace of the man has been found. He is known to have homicidal tendencies, a fact which renders his immediate recapture a very urgent necessity. There followed a description of the wanted man. Jack turned to another part of the paper and dismissed the paragraph from his mind. His partner, however, was to bring the matter up at lunch. Norwood Asylum was near Dulwich, and Mr. Burnett was pardonably concerned. "'The woman folk at my house are scared to death,' he said at lunch. "'They won't go out at night, and they keep all the doors locked. How did your interview with the commissioner go on?' "'We parted the worst of friends,' said Jack. "'And Renette?' The next man who talks to me about Jean Briggerland's beautiful face is going to be killed dead through it, even though I have to take a leaf from her book and employ the grisly jags to do it. End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 That night the grisly jags was later than usual. Lydia heard him shuffling along the passage and presently the door of his room closed with a click. She was sitting at the piano and had stopped playing at the sound of his knock. When Mrs. Morgan came in to announce his arrival, she closed the piano and swung round on the music stool, a look of determination on her delicate face. He's come, miss. And for the last time, said Lydia ominously, Mrs. Morgan, I can't stand that weird old gentleman any longer. He has got on my nerves so that I could scream when I think of him. He's not a bad old gentleman, excused Mrs. Morgan. I'm not so worried about his moral character, and I dare say that it is perfectly blameless, said Lydia determinedly, but I have written a note to Mr. Glover to tell him that I really must dispense with his services. What's he here for, miss? asked Miss Morgan. Her curiosity had been aroused, but this was the first time she had given it expression. He's here because... Lydia hesitated. Well, because Mr. Glover thinks I ought to have a man in the house to look after me. Why, miss? asked the startled woman. You'd better ask Mr. Glover that question, said Lydia grimly. She was beginning to chafe under the sense of restraint. She was being school-marmed, she thought. No girl likes the ostentatious protection of the big brother or the head mistress. The soul of the schoolgirl yearns to break from the crocodile in which she is marched to church and to school, and this sensation of being marshaled and ordered about, and of living her life according to a third person's program, and that third person a man, irked her horribly. Old Jags was the outward and visible sign of Jack Glover's unwarranted authority, and slowly there was creeping into her mind a suspicion that Jean Briggerland might not have been mistaken when she spoke of Jack's penchant for ordering people about. Life was growing bigger for her. She had broken down the barriers which had confined her to a narrow promenade between office and home. 
The hours which she had had to devote to work were now entirely free, and she could sketch or paint whenever the fancy took her, which was not very often, though she promised herself a period of hard work when once she was settled down. Toward the good-looking young lawyer, her point of view had shifted. She hardly knew herself how she regarded him. He irritated, and yet in some indefinable way pleased her. His sincerity? She did not doubt his sincerity. She admitted to herself that she wished he would call a little more frequently than he did. He might have persuaded her that Jaggs was a necessary evil, but he hadn't even taken the trouble to come. Therefore, but this she did not admit. Jaggs must go. I don't think the old gentleman's quite right in the head, you know, sometimes, said Mrs. Morgan. Why ever not, Mrs. Morgan? asked the girl in surprise. I often hear him snigger into himself as I go past his door. I suppose he stays in his room all night, miss? He doesn't, said the girl emphatically, and that's why he's going. I heard him in the passage at two o'clock this morning. I'm getting into such a state of nerves that the slightest sound awakens me. He had his boots off and was creeping about in his stockings, and when I went out and switched the light on, he bolted back to his room. I can't have that sort of thing going on, and I won't. It's altogether too creepy. Mrs. Morgan agreed. Lydia had not been out in the evening for several days, she remembered, as she began to undress for the night. The weather had been unpleasant, and to stay in the warm, comfortable flat was no great hardship. Even if she had gone out, Jaggs would have accompanied her, she thought ironically. And then she had a little twinge of conscience, remembering that Jaggs' presence on a memorable afternoon had saved her from destruction. She wondered for the twentieth time what was old Jaggs's history and where Jack had found him. Once she had been tempted to ask Jaggs himself, but the old man had fenced with the question and had talked vaguely of having worked in the country, and she was as wise as she had been before. But she must get rid of old Jaggs, she thought, as she switched off the light and kicked out the innumerable water bottles with which Mrs. Morgan, in mistaken kindness, had encumbered the bed. Old Jaggs must go. He was a nuisance. She woke with a start from a dreamless sleep. The clock in the hall was striking three. She realized this subconsciously. Her eyes were fixed on the window, which was open at the bottom. Mrs. Morgan had pulled it down at the top, but it was now wide open, and her heart began to thump, thump rapidly. Jags! He was her first thought. She would never have believed that she could have thought of that old man with such a warm glow of thankfulness. There was nothing to be seen. The storm of the early night had passed over, and a faint light came into the room from the waning moon. And then she saw the curtains move, and opened her mouth to scream, but fear had paralyzed her voice, and she lay staring at the hangings, incapable of movement or sound. As she watched the curtain, she saw it move again, and a shape appeared faintly against the gloomy background. The spell was broken. She swung herself out of the opposite side of the bed and raced to the door, but the man was before her. Before she could scream, a big hand gripped her throat and flung her back against the rail of the bed. Horrified, she stared into the cruel face that leered down at her. 
and felt the grip tighten. And then, as she looked into the face, she saw a sudden grimace and sensed the terror in his eyes. The hand relaxed. He bubbled something thickly and fell sideways against the bed. And now she saw. A man had come through the doorway, a tall man with a fair beard and eyes that danced with insane joy. He came slowly toward her, wiping on his cuff the long-handled knife that had sent her assailant to the floor. He was mad. She knew it instinctively and remembered in a hazy, confused way a paragraph she had read about an escaped lunatic. She tried to dash past him to the open door, but he caught her in the crook of his left arm and pressed her to him, towering head and shoulders above her. "'You have no right to sit on a court-martial, madame,' he said with uncanny politeness, and at that moment the light in the room was switched on and Jags appeared in the doorway, his bearded lips parted in an ugly grin, a long-barreled pistol in his left hand. "'Drop your knife!' he said, or I'll drop you. The mad doctor turned his head slowly and frowned at the intruder. Good morning, General, he said calmly. You came in time. And he threw the knife on the ground. We will try her according to regulations. End of chapter 14